who's in charge of, of the finances, her name is Elizabeth, uh, uh, Isabel Gill, uh, she, she's, man, she's stern when it comes to record keeping. And she said she's never seen such a quick turnaround in her history. And she's been with New Life from the beginning. And you know what, can I say, what I realized from the very beginning, God was always going to do what he was going to do. It wasn't hinging on anyone's participation. I'm telling you this, it was not hinging on anyone's participation. He literally opens the door, calls, and those who come in are the ones who hear his voice. Quick story. My old pastor, Asa F., when he was a seminary student, was on a bus on LaSalle Street, and the Lord said to him, I want you to stand up, and I want you to evangelize the gospel to everybody on that bus. And he was standing there, and he was a freshman, and he was scared, and he's like, but it's not the right time. Nothing. He hears nothing. The door's open. An older gentleman walks on the bus, walks to the front of the bus, gives the gospel to everybody on the bus. Literally, the bus pulls over at the next bus stop. He gets off. You know what that told him? That God's going to do whatever he's going to do. And you have a choice. You have a choice whether you're going to be a part of it or whether you're going to watch it happen. And it re it, he regretted that for the rest of his life that he wasn't there. Remember that. Remember that. God is opening the door and he's saying, hey, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Do you want to be a part of it? All right. Well, that's, 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 my, uh, that's my sermon for today. Let's see. <laughs> Everybody clapped. You weren't supposed to clap about that. All right. Let's, uh, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 15. And let's say a quick prayer. Not a quick prayer, but a, a sincere prayer. An honest prayer. Because if we don't, we're wrong we're wrong right off the bat. Father God, more than anything else, yes, gratitude should be on our lips. And there's more than enough things for us to say thank you for. Lord, as we look around, whether it's raining, whether it's snow, whether it's cold, whether it's warm, whether we got money in our account, whether we're dirt poor, Lord God, there's more than enough to give you thanks. And Lord God, your word, your spirit confirms it within us. If we have you, we have more than enough regardless of what the outside looks like. Lord God, we want to hear from you today. I was thinking to myself, there's people who are here for the first time. Lord God, only you can open up their eyes. Only you can do it. There's no skill level. There's no, I don't know, it's not like you look around and go, man, I really need that person, that guy or that girl to be a part of my team, and then we're going to grow. No, no, no. You make it through. It's your power from beginning to end. And we're asking you to exalt yourself, Lord God, because that's how we get saved. That's how we get saved in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay, so it's a short story, and it, it comes in the midst of, of uh, Jesus ministering on top of uh, this mount on the side of, of the Sea of Galilee. It's a hillside. And it's, he's talking to a group of people, and Jesus is leaving a place called Tyre. So let's look at chapter 15, verse 21, and we're going to read from there. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew from the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this was a bad place. You didn't want to go there. If you were a Jew, you didn't want to go to Tyre and Sidon for a lot of different reasons. There were, there were prejudices. Guess what? Can I tell you something? Prejudice isn't something new. We like to believe, oh, everybody's prejudiced. Yeah, well, that's just been the way it's been forever. And guess what? Any politician who says they could get rid of it, they're lying. They're lying to you. So he says he's, he, he, he withdraws from the re region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out loud, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering, from terribly, suffering terribly from a demon possession. Jesus did not answer her a word. I'm going to say that again. Did not answer her a word. So the disciples came to him, and they urged them, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman heard this, came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, now listen, this is going to insult you. I want you to hear this. He goes, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Did you hear that? <laughs> yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. 
Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Okay. Now if we go to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read three verses. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. All right, that's the word of God. All right, there's a couple things that we learn about the kingdom. And I, I'm going to tell you something. I have a particular viewpoint and a particular doctrinal viewpoint that someone has taught me along the way, and I believe it was the Holy Spirit because I can see in a linear fashion how God moves. Unfortunately, for some, when they read the Bible and they teach it to me, I see God acting this way here, this way here, this way here, doing this here and doing that there. One thing I've learned from the very beginning was that God does not change. His plan does not change. His actions don't change. His wordings doesn't change, and his thought patterns don't change. So God doesn't act differently with different people at different times. I want you to get that. That's all throughout the Bible. He says, I am God and I do not change. One of the things that we can make the mistake of thinking is this. Now hear me out. We think that we are saved by our faith. You are not saved by your faith. You're not. Let me tell you something. People believe in a whole lot of stuff. And none of which saves them. There are people who are sincere who believe in gods that do not exist. We are saved in order to believe. It is who we have faith in that matters. That's how we're saved. Because I can believe in anything, and only one has the power to save me. All right. Saying this as the precursor, everything comes from this. This was the beginning. It was an inaugural month for Jesus. Jesus is coming on. It's not like a campaign. He's like, you've been waiting for your king. You've been waiting for your salvation, and here I am. I'm here. I've come. I want you to pay attention. So he starts to speak to them, and what does he do? He begins to call people out from the Matrix. Remember that movie with uh, Keanu Reeves, The Matrix? There were people who were operating every day and they had no idea that they were operating as part of a system and they were actually an engine for that system and they really didn't get it. They thought they were living, they thought they were doing stuff, they thought that they had life, but in reality they were part of, uh, of an engine that was feeding off of them and they were kind of brainwashed. So Jesus inaugurates his kingdom by calling out, listen to me, I want you to come out. But I want you to understand this. In the end of his, at the end of his three and a half year mission, there was only 25. <laughs> there was only 25. So he calls everyone out the same way. I see that Jesus calls everyone out the same way. And how does he do that? He turns on the lights. I can remember exactly the time that he turned on the lights in my life. I had heard the gospel before. You know, I, I, not to be critical of the Catholic Church, I've never heard the gospel in the Catholic Church. And I, I never did, and I, I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying the truth. When I heard the gospel, I'd heard the gospel, and I thought to myself, that's another religion, and I don't want to be a part of it. See, I'm a Catholic. But the reality was, I was part of the Matrix. I was part of the Matrix. I was living, breathing. I thought I had life, but the reality was I was kind of trapped. I was trapped into something, and I was brainwashed and kind of living this life, but I really wasn't alive, right? So I remember when he turned on the lights in my life, and when I heard it, I heard it in a way that both challenged everything that I knew. It touched the most vulnerable aspect of my heart I can I can tell you, it was, all, it was about sin. It was literally like the guy who was talking to 20,000 men, turned around and pointed right at me and said, hey, you're an enemy of God. <laughs> and I didn't want to hear it. I was like everybody else. I got problems. I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect. All I need is 30 days. That's what I used to say to myself. I just got to get my life together for 30 days. If I can get myself to 30 days, then I'll be okay. But the reality is I couldn't go three days without being so drunk, drunk or high. I couldn't. From 13 to 33. That's the truth. 
So he calls us by turning on the lights. The whole of humanity has been born into a mental slavery and spiritual deadness. We call this original sin. There are those Orthodox Jews, Muslims, other people of many other faiths, even certain denominations within Christianity that do not believe in original sin. But something happened in the Garden of Eden to our federal parents. You know, we could go through that because I'm telling you, that's something that's, once again, I don't think properly taught. It wasn't like they were perfect in the Garden. They had just not sinned. If they were perfect, they would have never wanted to sin. But they did. As soon as they were given the opportunity to take control and snatch life out of God's hands, you know what they did? Sign me up. There was something deeply wrong in them. And God knew it. He God knew it. You know why? Because his plan was never for man to operate outside of his grace. Ever. It was always for Jesus to save. Always. From before time. So this is what happens. We've all been born into mental slavery and spiritual darkness called original sin. Everyone throughout history has bought into the big lie that we can be ultimately our own gods. Some are like, no, that's not true. No, no, it is true. It is true. We love to be our own gods, and that's caused more of my problems than I like to admit. You know what? In effect, that means... That because I want to be my own God, I trust in my own strength, I trust in my own wisdom, I trust in my own desires, and I trust in my own ability to be good enough, smart enough, able enough. That's what it is. That's sin right there. You're like, well, that's not wrong. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, it is. When it puts me against God's authority, when it causes me to resist against him, yes, that is a very big sin. Literally, it is the root of all sin. This has always been Satan's number one ad campaign. He has never changed his, his, his pattern. He has never changed his direction. In the past, Satan, the adversary, would influence humanities to worship gods of their own designs. That means I worship a god who I could bribe. I'll give you, but when I give you, I'm expecting that you're going to make my crops grow. You're going to make my children healthy. You're going to make my marriage successful. I'm going to have many kids, and I'm going to have lots of money. So I'll give you this stuff, but I want something in return. That's the way Satan used to work. We've grown past that. You, me, we live in an area, in an era where that's gone. We think we've, we've, we're too educated for such a thing. We've literally stripped off the middleman. Now, this is how I know we're ending a season. We're, we're ending. There's, it's, it's an ending. I don't know if that means Jesus is coming back, but something's ending here. We're on the precipice of something new. We now believe we don't need gods of our own making. We are gods. So we cut out the middleman and we just worship self. Take a look around. Look at YouTube. Look at TikTok or TikTok or whatever you want to call that stuff. It's okay. TikTok. I like TikToks. I don't like the TikTok other stuff, though. You know what, even my, my, you know, I'm just telling you, man, everybody, you know, I, I noticed it about a couple of years, I didn't get it. I'd see these young girls always like, <laughs> I didn't get it. What, what are you doing? What are you doing with your phone? This was their way of communicating with their friends, so they take pictures of it. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But you got to kind of agree that there's something that's happened where we've become completely obsessed with ourselves. That's what's happened. This is what's happened. And Satan, he's the guy who orchestrated it all. You know why? Because he's the originator of it. He got all this stuff from God. He had all this wisdom and all this beauty. And then one day he's looking at himself and he's thinking, why do I got to worship this guy when I look like this? So he literally talks to the other angels and he says, you know what? We don't need that guy. We could be our own thing here. Guess what? It's not me being a boss. It's you being a boss and you being a boss and you being a boss and me being a boss. We could be our own bosses. And guess what? God said, okay, have at it. Well, guess what? He gave them their own kingdom, but it was a kingdom of death. Mankind's been ruling this world for a long time. They're still good thing by God's grace. But do you like the overall direction of stuff? No. You know why? Because humans are running the show. It's a fact. And I think some people would say, no, that's pessimistic. 
I don't know. It just seems to me obvious. The scripture today tells me this. That Jesus is interested in making disciples. He is not interested in crowds. That's why I love Easter's. And I love when people come forward and they make professions of faith. I love when we have altar calls where people are stacked up. But can I tell you something? 25 years of following Jesus, I wish I had a dime for every time that I prayed with someone who cried over an Easter message or some kind of a message. Oh, God's speaking to me and I can't take it. I'm so overwhelmed. And six weeks later, they're gone. Jesus says, follow me. It means take your stuff you got in your hand and put it down and walk away from it. Come follow me because you can't walk in two directions. See, he's not interested in the crowds. What does it mean to be a disciple? It's really clear. If you were to be, this is where really understanding the culture way back then would really kind of give us a good indication. If you were as a young man, first of all, unfortunately, women were not allowed to be disciples of their teachers. Why? Because men, humanity as a whole has a way of separating and isolating and, and, and being prejudiced, right? So if you were a young man and you decided one day that you were going to apply to this teacher and the teacher said, yes, I want to mentor you, they would have a huge party for you and then your father or the elder of your family would say, may the mud of his sandals, your teacher's sandals, cake to the front of your robes. That's an old way of saying May your relationship with your teacher be so intimate and so tight that your outward appearance would be changed just by walking with him. That's what Jesus is interested in. He's like, you know what he never says to anybody? Read the Gospels. Don't, don't take my word. He doesn't say, hey, get your act together. Hey, you, you know what? I know what you've been doing when nobody watches around. Get, get your act together. Come back a couple weeks we'll see what's going on see how pro much progress you made he don't ever say that you know what he says i know who you are you don't even want to admit who you are but i'm still calling you to come follow me that's what he says he says it to everybody the same and you know what the ones who were caught in their desperate situations you know what they did they followed but the ones who were religious and were really still serious about kind of holding on to their life they conspired to kill them it's something for me to think about all the time. You know, I like to say this. In the beginning, I was a drug addict. But you know what? 26 years later, you know what? 25 years later, final Lord, you know what I could become? Not a drug addict anymore. I don't want to do that stuff. I could become a Pharisee. Oh, real easy. And I always pray, I go, don't make me a Pharisee, Lord God. Don't ever make me. Show me my weakness. Show me my need. Show me my need for you all the time because I don't want to be a Pharisee. All right, Jesus sees the crowd, and he begins to move up the side of the hill, and he takes his disciples with him. Jesus speaks very clearly about what he thinks about the crowds. I love the crowds. The crowds are a function of the church. We need the crowds. You know why we need the crowds? Because out from the crowds come the saved. If you have nobody to hear the gospel, that's why this is not a club. It's not a club. It's not a place where you pay your dues and you're part of it and this is my seat and I got this and don't, you know, I don't want to change. Listen, man, I'm going to tell you something. If you've really been called by Christ, this is your family. This is your home. But you, the place where you normally sit, when you see someone new, if this is a good spot, you go, hey, this is where I sit. Would you like to sit here? Because this is, man, this is a great spot to sit. That's, that's the way it works in the kingdom of God. So Jesus sees the crowd. And uh, he, he's, he's taking them up the hill. The scriptures tell me that Jesus, what he thinks about the crowds. In John chapter 2, verse 24, he says this. After he preached these things, everyone's like, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Jesus is here. He's great. Oh, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And everyone's like, you did it, Jesus. You did it. Peter's like, just, 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 just coordinate yourself right now. And you know what he did? He said, he retreated from the crowds and would not give himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. He's like, you want your version of Jesus, but that's not going to save you. I came to be me. If you want me, you got to have me, not who you want me to be. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. The crowds, 
as he sees, were always interested in the excitement. They loved the promise of God prospering them, making them healthy, giving them provision. People clamor for God's hand of charity to heal them and comfort them. And that's a good thing. But Jesus knew that only the people who were born again would stick around after the cost was revealed. Cost. You think to yourself, well, wait a minute. There is no cost for following Jesus. There is no cost for following Jesus. There is no cost for salvation. That's not true again. Salvation is 100% free, paid for by him. But fellowship with Jesus, that costs. The God the Father, you know what? He paid the cost to create you and me. And you know what his cost was? Insult. I, if I had a dime for every time I insulted God, I'd be a multi-billionaire. You know what else he had to pay? Unrequited love. You know what unrequited love is? Remember in your time when you loved someone, you wanted to be with them, you saw them, they were the most beautiful person you wanted, but they didn't even know you were alive. That's unrequited love. Mine was Mary Behenna in the fifth grade. I loved her. She wore a bow in her hair. She smelled like strawberries. I loved her. But she liked Eddie Barzowski. And I was a nobody to her. And you know what? God knows that feeling. God says, I created you for me, and you've loved everybody but me. Man, that's a cost. Jesus had to pay the cost of hell to purchase his beloved, to purchase us as his bride. That's quite a payment. What is our cost? Well, our cost is a little bit different. Our cost is one of total dependence. I have to come to the place to where I realize I need him more than I need anything else. This is what it means when Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Why do we need total dependence to walk with God? And here it is. If I keep even 1% of my own righteousness and my own strength and my relationship with God, you know what I'll be tempted to do? And you will too? To create a partnership that's kind of like a quid pro quo thing where I'll be moral, I'll serve, I'll give, but I expect you, God, to do something for me. I could tell you a great story about that woman. She was, man, she was, got such a strong conversion on, on, a, on a, a Good Friday. Man, she was, man, she was such a great witness. She'd have her family members, friends, all these people come over like, wow, this is amazing, until her son got out of jail. And you know what he did? He OD'd. He OD'd in six months. And you know what she did? She felt betrayed by God. You know where she's not today? In the church. See, the poor spirit person doesn't have those things that they're struggling with. If I keep even 1% of my own strength, I will be tempted to create a partnership with God where I will give to him only in order to receive. And when I feel he fails me, if I feel he fails on his end, I will retract on mine. You know what that's called? That's called moralism. And sometimes it's even preached from behind the pulpit. That will never be preached from me. You know why? Because salvation is of the Lord from beginning to the end. And when I get that through the power of the Holy Spirit, something different happens in my life. It's something that I can't say I produced. The only way for us to get into the presence of God is us being stripped of ourself. Why? Why is it cost me being stripped of myself to get in the presence of God? You know why? Because in my human nature, I want to rebel against God. I want to be a king. But I can't be a king in the presence of the king of kings. It just doesn't work. What does it happen? If you have a husband and wife and both want to be the boss, how long do you think that family is going to survive? It's not. It's a house that's divided. There's two power controls. And for me to get in the presence of God, I have to take my little crown and throw it down. That's what David did when he danced around and he took off his, his, his kingly robes. Why? You know why? Because he realized he was in the presence of the real king. And he was like, it's not proper for me to be dressed like a king in front of this king. So he stripped himself and he made himself look like a servant to the point of embarrassment. That's what we saw with that woman. She said, but even the dogs 
eat from what falls off the table. Paul was a wonderful example of what it meant uh, to be uh, supernaturally stripped of himself. He was a man who was very confident in what he brought to the table. He believed and he revered in God with sincerity. He believed in God. When someone says, well, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. You know what we got to think to ourselves? James tells us even demons believe that. That don't mean nothing. That don't mean nothing. He believed. He was a man of sincere belief. But he was also a man who was very confident in what he brought to the table. He believed and revered God with sincerity, but he also placed much of his faith in the family that he was born into. He put a lot of faith into his education. He put a lot of faith into his discipline. He put a lot of faith into his skill and his zeal. Until when he meets the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Everything he thought he knew, everything he had placed his worth on, everything he had placed his significance on, immediately upon seeing Jesus Christ risen, raised up, the man that he was fighting against, it literally tore everything apart. He was psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually stripped that if it were to happen to me, it might have emotionally broken me. You know, one of the reasons that I feel like my conversion was so powerful was because he truly got me to the end of myself. Man, it wasn't just a good idea for me. I was like, there's something bad going to happen if I keep going his direction. He met the risen Jesus Christ and he saw true righteousness. He realized in an instant all of his religion and all of his zeal and all of his sacrifice was really an effort to get to heaven without needing God's help. When we see a community, we're like, oh man, that's a religious community. That's a good thing. Not so much. You're like, wait a minute, what if religion's a good thing? No, it isn't. Can I tell you something? Salvation's not religion. Religion is me doing what I need to do so I can get God to do what I want him to do. That's my way of getting, my, getting his hands off my life. Salvation is like, hey, listen, I want you to understand that your life has always been my life. I made you for me, and I want you to start trusting so that you can let go of the direction, so you can let go of the way. You could be super religious, but you know what, though? Come the time of retirement, I'm going to Florida. Why? It's going to be easy. Nice, I won't have to pay taxes. What if God says, I want you to minister to people? What if he says, I want you to stay in Chicago? What if he says, I want you to work with youth? What if he says, I want you to give up this so you can do that? Do you know, that takes the Holy Spirit to do stuff like that. And that's what he's after, folks. That's what he's after. Jesus takes his disciples up the hillside. I don't believe that this is an unimportant detail. The walk of a disciple of Jesus Christ is always upward, and it will always go against the pull of gravity. I, you, we have a fleshly nature, and it's very different from every other fleshly nature. But I can tell you what my fleshly nature does. It has demands. I demand people see my worth or respect, not in a prideful way, but if I feel like you're trying to make me feel stupid or little, man, that could produce something inside of me, Right? Does anyone know what I'm talking about or is it just me here? Come on, don't let me preach to myself. But I will. I'll preach to myself. I don't care because I need help. <laughs> you know what? Here's another one. Uh, I, I, um, I, I can feel injury really badly. Like when I love someone and they let me down, man, I'm tempted to want to hold on to that and keep them in prison for a while. Why? Because... I don't want to be hurt again, maybe. Or maybe I feel justified. When Jesus says, I want you to forgive that person, I want to say to him, do you know what that person did to me? Do you know how they made me feel? Do you know what they took from me? To which Jesus could look me square in the eye and go, yeah, I know. I know exactly what you got. Jesus takes his, his disciples up the hillside. It will always go against the pull of gravity. And the pull of my fleshly gravity is to resist God. It's to pull away from God. One of the prayers that I pray for Celebrate Recovery God is grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. You know why? Because I've never seen a situation where I wasn't confident if I were in charge, it'd be better. 
Who else knows what I'm talking about? If I were the mayor, if I were the boss, if I were in charge, man, my first church, God, I'm glad I didn't open my mouth. But everything my pastor did, I was like, well, I wouldn't do that. And if I was this man, I would go in that direction. And then I got to be a pastor, and God showed me. He's like, you don't know as much as you think you know. You know, one of the things I love about Celebrate Recovery is you know what I never heard from Julian? This is what I do, and you should do what I do. He doesn't. You know what he does? He says, why do you think you're doing what you're doing? What is it that you're looking for? What's deep down inside? Let's talk about what's really going inside of you. Where are you at right now? When I was out talking to him about anger, you know, he asked me the craziest question. He goes, he goes, what do you want? And I go, what has that got to do with anything? You know what? My anger was because I thought I deserved something from somebody and they were not giving it to me. So that little nugget of anger started spreading like cancer. It was at my work at first, then it went to everybody at my work, then it went to my home at work. Then it was with me when I would go to church. Kind of a crazy thing like that, right? So Jesus, what does he want from us? He wants to influence us to surrender. He wants to influence us to trust in the sufficiency of his love, in the sufficiency of his favor, the sufficiency of his leadership. You know what my flesh wants to think? I want you, Jesus, but I need this. God says, how about this? If you trust me enough to give you what you need, how about if you trust that I'm not going to let you die in the desert? How about if you just trust me just a little bit to let go of things that I tell you to let go of. But Lord, you don't get it. I really need this stuff. And he's like, nah, you think you are. You know why? That's the old matrix thinking. The old matrix thinking. So Jesus begins to push back against the common definition of what it means to be blessed. I hope I'm not putting you to sleep. All right. Most people believe, and you'll agree with me, what it is to be blessed means this. I've got a certain amount of financial security, I'm relatively healthy, my children are thriving, my position is secure, I'm not overwhelmed by fears or worries. That's what it means to be blessed, right? Isn't that what we usually think? That's what it is. Man, I'm blessed. Too blessed to be stressed. <laughs> Jesus shocks the heart of his hearers by saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. If you're in that crowd, the first word that jumps out to you is poor. Because poor and blessed are never in the same sentence. I'm poor, but I'm blessed. No, no one ever says that. But he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That means for someone to be brought to the place to where they understand their complete need. They understand their lacking. This is a person who is a beggar. God is saying, it is blessed for you when you come to me, called by the Holy Spirit, to be a beggar. Like that woman, I'm begging you. Jesus, please help me. The disciples are like, kick her to the curb. She's bugging us. And he's like, what do you want, lady? She's like, please help me. And you know what he was doing? He was challenging them by talking to her. He didn't call her a dog. He was calling her what they thought she was. He was challenging all them prejudices because the Jew thought they were so much better. And Jesus goes, yeah, this woman that you think's a dog, she gets it. But you, you're my kids. You don't get it. Man, talk about unrequited love. Man, unbelievable. I remember when I was uh, starting with the downtown uh, there were two guys on South Water Street in Wabash. The first guy, I will never forget it, he was super abrasive. He would beg for things. He wouldn't beg, he would demand. He would say, hey, I'm hungry, can you give me money? And he was angry. He was just an angry guy. He was kind of prone to violence a little bit. But when people would walk past him, he'd curse him out. I'll never forget it. I used to try to shag him around. I go, don't do that. Don't talk to people like that. And he'd yell at me, swear at me. But then there was another guy on the other side of the street and he was a little bit older, and he was the most, you know, he was just the kind of gentlest guy. And he smiled all the time, and I knew he was homeless. It was weird how he would smile. And he would open the door for the people who were coming out of the, uh, the train over there and, and uh, 
uh, out of the 7-Eleven, and he'd welcome them, good morning, good morning, good morning, and they'd all know he was homeless. And you know what they do? I realized he used to have supplies because everything that people would brought him, he brought it to the site. So they got the one guy who's cursing people out, and this other guy on the other side of the street, and he'd have stuff. I mean, stuff. Stuff that he could eat all day long. People would always bring him coffee, rolls, sandwiches. People, I'd see women who'd made lunches for him bring him. Every winter, he'd have a new coat on. Every year, he'd have new shoes on. You know why? Because there was something in that guy that understood his need. He understood that he didn't have a demand. You owe me! He didn't think like that. The other guy was like, you owe me! But that guy, he was like, man, if you could just see it in your heart to help me out. And you know what I realized? The people who helped him out didn't help him out because they pitied him. His actions, his attitude produced something inside of them to act in a way where they realized, I'm walking this way to be a part of something bigger to make a provision for that guy. When they brought him food and clothes and coats, they didn't do it because they're like, I'm doing a good thing. I really got the sense that they were like, no, I really think this is exactly why I'm here. Man, that's a powerful thing. When we are in poor in spirit, this compels and prompts God to act in a way that is incredibly benevolent to us. This is why it is to be blessed to be poor in spirit because it prompts God. The idea of poorness of spirit relays the idea that I, as a person, realize I've come to the end of my own strength and my own skill. I cannot save myself. I cannot save myself, no matter how much I'm determined to do so. And I'm not even talking about heaven, because we as human beings love to try to save ourselves. Let me explain to you. We have an insistence in doing this. I don't have a demand when I realize that I'm poor in spirit. I shouldn't, I, I realize that I can't even expect anything. Poorness of spirit makes me willing to be extremely vulnerable, almost to the point of dependence. Can I tell you something? There's many things that I don't like in my relationship with God. You know what the one is, more than anything else? Dependence. I'm like, oh yeah, God provides for me. But you know what I always want? A job that pays. I remember I first worked for the city, and they were going to release me. After um, I got get the word, they're going, yeah, 30 days, they're going to let you go. And I'm like, oh, man, what am I going to do? And I know the Lord's telling me, I've provided for you, I'm going to provide for you. Then a bid comes out for streets and sanitation. And what do I do as I fill it out? I say to the Lord, give me this job. Once again, he reminds me, I'm provided for you. I go, yeah, yeah, I know that, but I'd really like this job. Well, guess what? He gave me the job, Right? Then I went to Streets of Sanitation, and it was the hottest summer of history. And I was sitting in that truck that smelled like dead fish. And I was on the west side, and it was terrible. And I was nauseated and sick. And there was the Lord right there going, hey, how secure do you feel now? <laughs> yeah, right. If you'd have just listened to me, you'd have been at the airport. But you wanted it because you trusted me, but you needed the job. See, dependence, poorness of spirit causes me to be willing to kind of like be stretched out. Literally, dependence is like this, where I literally, if this moves, I'm falling. That's what poorness of spirit is. That's only produced by the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that many people understand the seriousness of their human condition. And when I don't understand the human condition, my true, my true condition before God, you know what it does? It lessens my natural response to him. The person that understands the poverty of being separated from God's loving kindness, the person who gets it, who truly understands it, who hears the word of God, it's penetrated, it causes them to be exposed to the greatest power of transformation. It's an incredibly fertile ground. You know how God changes me and prompts me and moves me? It's not through threats. It's not like I'm going to pull back and I'm going to let you die and I'm going to let you suffer. You know how he does it with me? He reminds me of how much he's loved me, of how much he's cared for me, of how much he's been counted on in my life, of how he was providing for me when I didn't even care that he was providing for me. 
This wasn't just a new thing. He's been doing it forever. Because I used to love to get myself in a trick. Not a trick bag, that's another good one. But I would always get myself in a bad place. And God always provided a way for me to get through it. He always did it. And when I was at my lowest point, you know what he did not do to me? Look what your sins have done. He said, stand up, come follow me. And when I realized on the third day after I received, I got up and I did it. I go, man, you got the wrong guy here, Lord God. I'm going to screw this up. <laughs> Everyone else was crying, not me. I was like, you got the wrong guy. You know what he reminded me? You know what he assured me? Don't worry. I wasn't trusting you to begin with. What I start, I finish. It's my power that's going to make this happen. That's what poorness of spirit produces. David understood death satisfaction. I'm going to be real quick here. He said this in the 23rd Psalm. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's poorness of spirit. He got it by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what that doesn't mean? This is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean because the Lord's my shepherd, I'm never going to hurt. I'm never going to be sad. I'm never going to be worried. I'm never going to be lonely. I'm never going to be hungry. And I'm never going to be afraid. That's what it doesn't mean. You know what it means when he understands the Lord is his shepherd, he shall not want. He understands that this is a rope that pulls him back to the anchor of his heart. That means when he's at his lowest place, when he's looking around and he's like, man, my sins are around me more than the hairs on my head. That's not my words. That's his words. People pointed at him and said, look, you trusted in God. Where is he now? He's even abandoned you. And you know what he said? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It was literally a rope that pulled him back. And it pulled him back to a place to where he could be in a safe harbor when there were storms all around. You know, we live in a world of storms. It could be good today, but trust me, in a couple weeks, there are going to be waves coming in. And you know what? When you're not poor in spirit, when those waves come in, you'll be tempted to question, did you abandon me? Did you leave me? Did I do something for you to walk out? No. The poor in spirit person understands, God, you're in control. You've never left me. You'll never leave me. You hold on to me, Lord God. And if you've placed me here, you'll cause me to survive. And more than that, Lord God, as I'm scared and I'm crying in the middle of the night, you're with me. That's poor in spirit. She talked about marriage. Marriage is tough. You know why? Because two people are very different from one another. Imperfect in every way. And you know what the problem happens is when I look at you and I say, you should be this, and I forget that I'm this. And I forget how God has had nothing but patience with me and kindness with me and treated me with such skill. When I demand of you to provide something for me that I can't even provide for you. And then I begin to think to myself, that's not what marriage is for. No, no, no. That's exactly what marriage is for. So that I can take you through storms and make you look like me. That's what poorness of spirit is. All right, let's stop here. I want to say this. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Poorness of spirit can be summed up in this. Kent Richardson is a guy, you, many of you know him, he's a great guy. Great guy, thoughtful guy, skilled guy. He used, God uses him. You know, when he was an elder with me, I used to realize that he was happiest when he was causing other people to flourish. And I was like, I saw it and I go, man, I want that. I want that. Because I saw God. So he has he, him and his wife waiting for children for a long time. You know what didn't happen? They were having children. Doctors were like, we don't know. You're healthy, but maybe you're not going to have it. She was getting older, though. So we all prayed as a church. God provides them a child, right? Daughter. Well, the child was a little bit sickly, you could say. Didn't sleep properly, a little colicky. And he sent a text to the church. It must have been at 2 in the morning. And he said, it's been a rough week for Kristen and I. 
Margaret is not sleeping well these days. She's not eating her food well. And I realized as I was holding her that the child that I wanted brought a lot of labor along with her. The thing I wanted brought a lot of labor with her. But then he said this. He said, but no matter how much labor, I could tell you the truth, I never thought I could love another human being like I love this kid. That's what poorness of spirit produces in the life of a believer. Does that make sense? God says, is he caring for you, burping you, rocking you as you're whining and crying, as you're putting your hands on things you shouldn't do, as he chases you around, as he stops you from running out into traffic. Let's stand up. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
there's none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. All right, this is what we do here because we are one body, we are one people. We serve one God, this is one faith, we have one spirit. We're holding hands here. We hold hands. I know that's weird, I don't care. We're going to hold hands, we're going to cross aisles. That means move from where you're at so that you can make the change. Get in there, get in there. <laughs> this, this circle be unbroken. God has built, no man can get in between and tear down. Listen, you heard it. There's life groups here. You heard it. The door is open. God's saying, hey, I'm ringing the bell. I'm going to do amazing things. Do you want to be a part of it? Well, you know what? You can't be a part of it is if Sunday's the only day you're here. Just telling you. That's like vacation. You got to make a choice. There's three groups with lovely people. Man, I was like, man, I want to be a part of these groups. I'm grateful to be here. I'm, I'm the most blessed person in this place. Bar none. Bar none. Let's pray. Father God, I am amazed. I am amazed that you could do what you do through the people you do it through. <laughs> and I just want to be there. I want to be there to see it. Lord God, I am not that vulnerable all the time. I do it for periods of time and then my back hurts and I pull back. I want to be surrendered, man. I want to be surrendered. I want to be a part of a body that surrenders. <laughs> I want to be a part of a movement where people are really surrendered so that when other people who are still clamoring for control come in, they can see there's something different here. Lord, I want your power to pour out. I don't want to operate like you. I want to operate in your love. I want us to operate in your love because that's how you conquer death. Lord God, we want to be a part of it. We want to see it happen. We want to see it happen in our minds and in our hearts and in our homes and in our marriages. We want to see it in the aisles of the church, in the streets of the community. Lord God, it doesn't matter. The world's fading away. It's fading and falling down. But you, Lord God, are raising up. You're purifying and perfecting, Lord God. You're going to win. You're going to win. So, Lord God, we want to be a part of it. Help us. Help us. Help us to make decisions prompted and empowered by your spirit. So that in the end, Lord God, you get the glory, not us. And this is our prayer with one heart in Jesus' name. And all the saints said, amen, amen, amen. after I want you to, to, to enjoy a moment with Joe. It's his birthday. We're celebrating his birthday. Please hang out. Tell him you love him. Meet someone. Talk to someone. Please. Let's do that.